You're listening to an ACA podcast. This talk is the first in a series of programs associated with Yuani Scarce Missile Park. This exhibition is on at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne until 14 June 2021, and at the Institute of Modern Art in Brisbane from 17 July until 18 September 2021. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are warned that the names of people who have passed away are mentioned in this conversation. To hear more from us, please subscribe to the ACA podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and sign up to ACA's newsletter at acca.melbourne. This evening, it's a great pleasure to introduce Yuani, along with her friend and long-standing interlocutor, Daniel Browning. Yuani was born in Woomera, South Australia, and belongs to the Gugutha and Nukunu peoples. She is a master glassblower known for sculptural installations which span architecturally scaled public art projects to intimate assemblages. Her work places family at the centre of her practice and draws on the experiences and strength of her ancestors, underpinned by extensive and in-depth research into wider cultural, colonial and global histories, including the displacement and relocation of Aboriginal people from their homelands, the removal of Aboriginal children from their families, and the ongoing impacts of the British nuclear tests undertaken at Woomera during the 1950s, all of which are central subjects to the exhibition. It is equally an honour to introduce Daniel Browning, who is a radio journalist, broadcaster, freelance arts writer and sound curator. Daniel is a saltwater guru from far north coast of New South Wales and the producer and presenter of Away the Indigenous Culture Programme on ABC Radio National, which has established Daniel as one of Australia's leading public intellectuals and thinkers. Daniel is also a contributor to ACCA's forthcoming monograph, publication accompanying the exhibition, with a beautifully um, written and insightful text on Yuani's work and the politics of memory. Yuani and Daniel will be in conversation for about 40 minutes, after which we'll have some, a short time for questions. So um, finally, before I'm handing over, I'd also like to acknowledge Bianca Winata Putri and Miriam Kelly for their role in the development of the public programs associated with Ioani's exhibition and for this evening's arrangements. And now, without further ado, please welcome Ioani Scarce and Daniel Browning. Thank you, Max, for that exceedingly kind introduction. I don't know about outstanding public intellectuals, but, oh, but there you go. Of course you are, yeah. Yuani, um, always a great pleasure to, to talk to you uh, as, a, as an artist uh, and professionally in this context, uh, but also as a friend. Um, I, I do believe I have a, a kind of a very enlarged sense of your practice. I want to just read something back to you that I wrote in relation to a work that was commissioned for the National in 2017 and exhibited, exhibited at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Um, and I only do this because I think it leads to uh, our discussion. I wrote, in the suspended wraith-like clouds, we are temporarily blinded to the lingering effects of the British nuclear tests on Aboriginal land across much of inland South Australia in the 1950s. On close inspection, the beauty of the work is subsumed by a deeper sense of national unease. On the excesses of blind ethno-nationalism, ethno, on the excesses of blind ethno-nationalism, the flagrant disregard for human life, and indifference to environmental destruction of which nations are capable. And that's what I see very much echoing here in Missile Park, here at Acre, talking about that kind of. Uh, you know, being compelled by the history of Maralinga and of the British nuclear tests. There's a simple fact, and that is you're born at Woomera, something that you're now not ashamed of. Yeah, definitely. I, th I was talking about it um, uh, on Friday night during an event here that I used to be quite, yeah, quite embarrassed about where I was born because I think um, I'm one of five children and I was... Uh, the odd one out, I guess. So it's, I felt anyway, because I was not one of those who were ch was born in a city, or, and I, but I was born on a military base. So it was something that I found quite, quite a lot to confront, I guess. And um, I remember being, uh, my mum taking me there during a road trip from Alice Springs to Port Augusta to visit family. <clears throat> and I pulled up and I was like, oh, jeez. Like, but, uh, um, 
but I was 16, I think, you know, but now it's sort of, I think I've really, I feel like, yeah, it's part of, it is part of my history and um, I'm fully engaged in its history, I think, and I keep going back as much as I can to unearth what is lying out there, really. Mm. And the objects that you create, I mean, it's important to remember that we, they begin, they're the germ, the germ of your practice is these objects, these, these long yams, um, they're bush foods cultivated, harvested by our mobs in the inland uh, over millennia. Um, they have a special power, these objects, though. They're all mo they, don't, they don't stand for themselves, they stand for something else. They're um, anthropomorphic. Yeah, definitely. I think... Um like, I remember when, like, the last two years of my uh, uh, arts degree, I was trying to figure out what to, you know, what was going on with them as well. And I think when I was training as a glassblower, there's this um, idea that you would move on to do more functional objects or, you know, two years at the jam factory was, they have an amazing associate program there. And... Um, who I work with, you know, uh, a lot as well. So it was, I couldn't see my culture being in a, a drinking vessel or something like that. So it was something that I, th yeah, was making bush food to represent something. And, I th you know, for me, it was, you know, a, a perfect representation of us, the food that we eat. Um, you know, they could be internal organs and they could be cut up like what you would see here in the exhibition. So it's something that was really a great symbol for me, I think. Yeah. I think I once, once, I've written a lot of crazy stuff about you. <laughs> um, one of the craziest things I've ever written was that the, some of the forms reminded me of um, organs, um, eviscerated organs exhumed in the prosecution of a war crime. Because we're talking here about um, genocide and about memory and about nuclear colonization. Um, so all these things kind of come together in these beautiful, lustrous glass forms, which you can see on the screen and certainly uh, in, in, in the first part of the gallery. They have this other meaning. They, they carry a lot of meaning. You call them truth um, time bombs, even. Oh, definitely. The, the bush plums that are situated in the New Commission Missile Park are exactly that. And I think when I was thinking about the New Commission and what kind of... Um, Glasswork would sit inside these sheds. The bush plum was perfect, yeah, because they you can create them on a larger scale and larger form. And for me, I kept thinking about what they would look like inside these sheds. So, you know, it was always obvious that they were going to be black as well. And um, when I think about bombs, I, you know, they're not always going to be the, the the usual thing that comes out of the sky or out of a plane. But um, for me, it was something more ground earth stuff. So um, the plum is like it has a wicker, is that what you call it? Yeah, so they're yeah, ready to be set off or the, you know, the, the, the truth is in those sheds and they're waiting to be unearthed or ready to go off, really. Mm. And they do have, I mean, you can derive your own meaning from them. I often look at the bush plums, which are rounded and have that long tail. I see in relation to um, uh, an installation called Fallout Babies or a, a series of works called Fallout, called Fallout Babies at This Is No Fantasy some years ago, the uh, bush plums reminded me of reproductive cells. Yes, at that time that the, I was, um, had just returned from Woomera and was researching the deaths of babies at, at Woomera and um, also thinking about the Aboriginal babies that were um, unaccounted for. But, you know, at, at Woomera Cemetery as well, there's, there's quite a lot of um, uh, children. It's a children's cemetery. And uh, back when I was doing that research, it was um, the, the nuclear tests were um, not being blamed for, the, for these children dying. It was always blamed on the weather and all the extreme conditions, but, you know, for anyone, I was born there in 73, like I'm still here. And, um, you know, when we travelled there in, in early January, it was, you know, 45 degrees. And, um, you know, it's, it's harsh, but I think it's not, you know, not to, it's not going to kill that many children. And also the children that are in that cemetery are probably only a quarter of what has been lost up there. 
So I can imagine that, you know, like the Aboriginal children, we wouldn't even know what happened to them. So, so I, th I have used the, you know, the image of that cemetery with the, with the um, fallout babies as well be and used the plum as a representation of, you know, gest different ge um, gestational periods of pregnancy, so the, the really early, you know, sort of embryotic stage to full term, but those those bush plums are sandblasted white because they no longer, you know, technically exist physically. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really moving um, exhibition, and, and the, f the images of the Woomera Cemetery, and we know that uh, with the cooperation of the uh, Australian authorities, uh, the bones of infants who died um, around this period, the 1950s and 60s. Uh, bone samples were taken without parental consent from those infants after their death. So the conspiracy was wide and deep. And the secrecy attached to uh, the British nuclear tests is something we haven't really, as a nation, fully reckoned with, I don't think. Yeah, and I'm, I wonder if they ever will. You think about the current government in, in its current state right now. I think like it's something that um, is yet to be fully acknowledged. And I think during the install of um, Defying Empire a couple of years ago at NGA, like it was, I'm not sure how many people are aware of that, but it's um, Jerry Turnbull, um, who was Prime Minister then, was, um, had given Aboriginal people the gold card, veterans gold card for healthcare. But it was like it's too late, a majority of them are dead now. And it's sort of like there's an inter intergenerational trauma with people, their descendants being affected by radiation poisoning and what, where does that leave them because it's, they're not being considered as affected by radio, yeah, by those nuclear tests too. So. It's a bit like stolen wages when they compensated our ancestors for all their stolen wages. It was too late, they'd already, they'd already passed away. In talking about a whole range of, uh, you know, parts of your practice, let's talk about, you know, family is a, is a key a key part of, of your practice, and it's where a lot of, uh, where things often begin for you. Was it, was it always that way? I mean, we have a work in, in, the, in the exhibition from 2004, um, the day they went away. Um, has family always been, and representing them, has it always been something that has driven your practice? Definitely, like I think they, you know, they're always circling around, I think, so it's something that, um, you know, it's really important for me to, um, yeah, to talk about in my practice. So um, I'm very lucky to have um, family members and cousins that are searching for photo photography and old photographs. So, because it, it can be very difficult to get a hold of um, images from other institutions that took photos of us or my family um, in the early days, really on missions and stuff. So. Um, but I grew up with that knowledge of my grandparents being, um, you know, really hard workers, put up with a lot of shit, had to always ask permission to travel um, and um, live, you know, below the poverty line, actually. So, but at the same time, it's like they've retained their culture really strongly. And so I always like to acknowledge them in that sense because, it, you know, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be where I am today, actually, and um, that, you know, they stood up, you know, for a lot of things, and, um, yeah, and I think they came out, you know, a lot stronger in the end. So did I, so, yeah. And the, I mean, in talking about the work, memory is a really important thing, and the politics of memory, and what we remember and what we forget, what nations remember and what they forget, what they are called upon to recall. Um, but I want to talk about the image of Granny Dinah, which is one of the most, for me, electric and moving images uh, in, um, in, the, in the exhibition, um, but across your practice too. I think that photograph was taken by Lutheran missionaries at Kunaba. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so it's, it's sort of unclear about who, who took that photo, but um, the, yeah, it was, it's an ethnographic photo, yeah, photograph, and um, I was... I wanted to um, create a work about her, and, um, and, but I didn't want to use the actual photograph because I felt like it was really disrespectful 
So, um, and I won't go into detail about it, but it was, for me, it was about her, her the way she looked at you. And, um, and so that was really important because, yeah, she, she, you know, she's my main matriarch, really, besides my aunties and my grandmother and my mother and things. So it was, um, yeah, a big honour to have her here. Mm, it is a big honour, yeah. And she exerts a kind of presence. The, the, the exhibition has, is populated by many presences and it's really important to have her there. So if you haven't seen the exhibition when you first walk in, uh, here on the left, you'll see the image that we've been talking about. Um, and then we move into the next space um, and then we're, we can, maybe we're talking about country, we're talking about, um, you know, massacre, we're talking about Elliston Downs. Um, in this extraordinary work, I think it was exhibited in Venice, Blood on the Waddle. The first one. Yeah, yeah. There's, yeah. A, there's a, there's there's a, a cousin. There's, there's a, a cousin, okay. yeah. Yep. So, just it's a, it's a coffin made of perspex filled with long yams, long black yams. Talk about the production of that work. Yeah, so I, um, yeah, I, the, the first one was um, exhibited at the, in a collateral event for Venice Biennale in 2013, I think it was. And um, then I was invited to uh, create a work uh, about, um, or for Melbourne now, actually, shortly after. And um, I thought, they were very interested in the coffin. But I, um, at the time I was reading Blood on the Waddle by, I can't remember the author for some Bruce, reason. Was it Bruce Elder? Yeah, that's yeah. it, yeah. So, um, so we asked permission to use that, that title for, the, for both works. And he was very generous with, um, yeah, allowing that. But I wanted to go back to South Australia again because um, for those who don't know, like, a lot of massacres were and are not documented. So South, South Australia in particular. So Blood on the Waddle, Elliston, 1849, I think it is. So there was a group of um, Aboriginal people, Wirungu, Gugatha, um, and uh, who were run off the cliff at Waterloo Bay there for stealing a sheep. So, um, and they say that only 30 people died, but I feel like, you know, I always believe that there's more. And so I create, for, that, for this coffin, there was two mounds in it to represent that, I guess that gully or that, that cliff face. So, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they were run into, they were run into the sea off a cliff. Yeah, and they probably bay. were shot beforehand too. So, and you know, it's, it, I should mention there were children as well. Yeah. Um, the other part of the the exhibition. I mean, if we, we think about family and we think about country, then we think about uh, nuclear colonisation. And you, you have, over the years, gone from you know talking about specifically Maralinga and the prohibited zone and Emu Field to talking about more largely about nuclear colonisation. You visited sites where of nuclear disaster all over the world, um, but also massacre sites and sites of, well, what would you say, human suffering. And they have had an impact you know, on your work, particularly the Holocaust Memorial in, in, in Berlin. Yeah, definitely, I think um, I, yeah, visited um, that memorial for the first time in 2008, I think. Um, I had won an art award from South Australia that enabled me to travel there. So that, and I, um, that was hev like really heavily influenced on um, my work and also um, at the time, I think I was only like two, two years, uh, three years, two years out of art school, I think. So, um, and, um, you know, it was the beginning of fieldwork research for me too. So it was um, an important place, I think, because I call Berlin Memorial City because there's memorials all over the place there. But um, that particular work made me think about the lack of memorials in Australia for First Nations people, particularly, um, you know, regarding frontier war and front, yeah, and, and the bigger picture of genocide. And so I started creating you know, specific works related to massacres after that, yeah. And also, I think, um, in, in terms of kind of the brutalist architecture and, um, 
and thinking about how buildings can hold memories, particularly if they are, uh, you know, um, dedicated to um, an act of violence. Um, but thinking about architecture, architecture has become more and more important to you and we see this extraordinary collaboration between you and Edition Office. Uh, the work you may see on the screens, a work called In Absence. Talk to me about that, why that seems so natural, a progression from, from blowing glass to then working with architects. I think um, I've, I've been working with an architect, Mikhail Roderick, for a, quite a long time. And, um, you know, we've worked together, we've worked together on Missile Park, the new commission, but he's, he's been around for nearly a decade with me. So, um, but with, with um, Addition Office, I think, like, um, I knew they wanted to work with me and um, it was just a matter of when. Um, because we have a mutual friend, Daniel Boyd, um, who they've worked with before. So um, it was interesting because I was on a research trip with Lisa Radford, my colleague at VCA, in Tbilisi in Georgia when they, Kim Bridgeland had approached me. So I was already, we were already looking at further like Soviet Union or former Soviet Union um, architecture. But I'd been interested in broodless architecture for a long time, specifically the Spomeniks throughout former Yugoslavia. So, um, so when we started talking um, about the NGV Architecture Commission, it was always obvious that it was going to be about Aboriginal infrastructure. And we'd been talking along the way, like I'd been travelling for six weeks, I think. So we're doing FaceTime and things like that. So it was, um, yeah, it was something that uh, we've, felt needed to have a presence in the garden, but not respond to the garden, but use the garden as a platform. So, uh, and uh, it was always going to be quite large. Um, it was originally meant to be 15 metres high. It ended up being nine metres high, it was big enough anyway. So, um, so it was, yeah, it was pretty amazing to work with them because I think we talked a lot about the sense of space and the sense of um, what we wanted people to achieve, like experience when they entered in absence or even saw an absence from afar. And it was always going to be a knowledge holder. And, um, but embrace people at the same time, yeah. And I said to you before um, that, 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 you know, this idea of, the, of what is memorialised, what is remembered, um, by nation states, what is forgotten, um, you know, these, are, these obviously echo very profoundly in your work, but this idea of the memorial, talk to me about, about that and about, you know, perhaps my, my idea is that everything you create is a memorial to something, it remembers something. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I, I did, yeah, I think it was... Um, Something, yeah, that I didn't really think about, I think, until, um, yeah, we were talking this afternoon, maybe, because I, I think because I'm in it all the time, it's sort of, I'm very specific about memorials and how they should look like, but you're right, like, it's something that, um, well, I do, I, I memorialise my family and I create a space for them to be remembered and um, not just by my, my family but for others as well because I think, uh, you know, Australia is very good at forgetting the past. I mean, you and I have talked about this amnesia, and um, and it's easy for that for people to forget. So it's uh, I don't I create work to not forget. So I guess that's that memory part of things. Yeah. And that's all that kind of politics of memory and, and talking about the um, the Soviet era monuments and what they tried to do. They were a, they were an attempt to kind of an incursion into memory and to break memory and to send it in a particular direction for political and sometimes propaganda purposes. Can we talk about Missile Park, though, the new commission? Um, tell us about these structures. They're extraordinary um, here, here, here in the uh, second part of the exhibition at ACCA. So these are um, scaled-down military buildings. So they're, they're what you see sometimes up at... Um, Maralinga, but also in the Maralinga village, but also the, uh, some of the architecture at Woomera as well. And you do see some of the farmyard stuff, you know, as you travel through South Australia. So it was, for me, it was about um, 
creating a space where uh, you know you get the idea that it could be military, and um, but also the military cover up of um, Aboriginal deaths in South Australia during the nuclear tests as well. So and how the Woomera prohibited area is, was implicated in that too, because who knows how many Aboriginal bodies lay out there. And um, so I wanted to create, um, you know, like tomb-like structures as well. So you enter a space, one space in particular, and you, ex you uh, are faced with the Aboriginal people that are sitting inside these, these sheds. So I call them, yeah, the Dirty Little Secrets or the House of Horrors as well, because it's, um, you do hear stories about the ground being open up and Aboriginal bodies being rolled in. So it's something... You know, it's a pretty, part, you know, disgusting part of South Australian history and Australian history in general. So, um, so the, the sheds themselves are, yeah, for me they're disintegrating. It's just a matter of time before the secrets come out and those little time bombs go off. So, and you're, for me, it's sort of like you're forced into that darkness as well. Yeah. One of the most kind of, I think, profound um, resonances for me, and we've talked about this, is, and I kind of realised this when I was researching um, the work that you was commissioned for the National in 2017. And that is at the breakaway site, one of the nuclear explosions um, put off by the, set off by the British in the 1950s uh, and 60s, um, you know, silica is what, is the stuff of, is the stuff of glass, is the, the raw material. It's also present in sand. So the sand undergoes the same process in infernal heat like during a nuclear explosion. Yeah, definitely. And we were talking about this this afternoon where I was, um, the, the, I was doing a residency in Birmingham last year, which is in partnership with Icon Gallery, um, which has been postponed until next year. And, um, and I had learnt, because I was, I, was invited to do the residency specifically because it was about my research into the nuclear tests in South Australia. So at the breakaway bomb site, I was told by an academic at the University of Birmingham that um, a lot of people think that because that particular bomb test was low to the ground, that they thought the ground had turned to um, glass before it was um, before it had actually gone completely off, as I would call it. So, the the topsoil of that site was elevated into the air, and it became molten. Then and then it was slapped back down on the ground. So that's how intense it was. And um, it's yeah, there's still remnants of that glass that have been has been left behind because they did do a supposed clean up in the 90s out there, so it's, it still remains. Um, but every time I go back, I've been back there three times, that glass is starting to disintegrate and return to the ground, so there's less out there, unless all these tourists are stealing it, but yeah, I wouldn't be doing that. Yeah. It's irradiated, irradiated. But it, it crackles underfoot, doesn't it? It does, yeah. and it glitters in the sun. It's kind of, it's, a, it's this, it's beautiful, but it's weird at the same time, yeah. Because in the hot shop, you're reaching, when you're blowing glass, the temperatures are in, infernal is the only word for them. Like, how hot does it get inside the hot it, shop? I guess it depends. I think, like, it's, um, it can be between 1,200 to 1,700 degrees in the furnace. Um, probably, yeah, so you, it's, it, yeah, it's burning hot, yeah. But yeah, I make work at the jam factory, so that that studio is pretty large. But during a hot day, when there's four burners going or four benches, it's you feel it, I think. But it's it's pretty extreme. Yeah. Well, I mean, another one, another point I wanted to make too about this: the resonance between glass and between the history of Maralinga is when they attempted the clean up in the 80s, I think. Um, many years after they'd abandoned Maralinga, they thought that they could get all the hardware, the trucks, the planes, everything, affected by plutonium, and vitrify it, like basically put it in a big pit and then pour molten glass on top in order to, dis uh, to, um, to render the material, the nuclear material, inert. So the glass has this 
it's just present in 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 the work that you do, and there's all these beautiful kind of resonances. Yeah, so I think um, yeah, I didn't realise what they'd done out there until I visited, and um, and uh, all the all the bomb sites that you see out there has been covered up. So. Um, and a lot of that machine, yeah, like you would say, there's planes, there's trucks, Land Rovers, buildings, towers. What else is there? You know, probably human beings, honestly. But, um, but yeah, it's. Uh, you s I think there's four pits out there, and um, they're large because because they dug the ground, like sort of five kilometres deep before encasing everything. And um, Uncle Robin Matthews, who's a tour, who does the tours out there, and hopefully he's, he's still out there because I'd love to see him again. But he's he has to do checks, boundary checks of those tombs, to make sure that they're not disturbed because the, the radiation will start to rise. Yeah. And it is. I mean, the country's contaminated. You're not. You're encouraged not to cook in the ground, um, and to not spend too much time. At ground level, you're meant to cover the ground if you're going, if you're intent on sleeping on it. Like it's still contaminated. Yeah. So it's it's um, you, you're told that it's low low levels, and but they say you can't really live out there for too long. But also there's there's caretakers that are out there as well as Uncle Robin um, who live out there for long periods of time. But um, and it's just, it's similar to like Fukushima and Chernobyl as well. Like you have low low levels of radiation, it's just not recommended to kick up the dirt or anything like that yet. We do have time for questions, um, but I just, I do want to say it's extraordinary to see the practice of an artist kind of move in all directions. I mean, I said to you that when we f I first met you 10, 15 years ago, everything was perfect, although all these forms were you know, lustrous and beautiful and sensuous. And then you, you got to a point where you started to pierce them. You, there's the, the work with the surgical, um, you know, that are cut by surgical means. Um, you started to break the surface of the glass. In, a, in, a, in a, some works that I saw at Tarawara, there were holes and there were just bits of glass. So you've kind of gone on this trajectory of like subjecting the medium to as much stress stress and pressure um, as possible in order to kind of exhaust it or find all its meaning. Yeah, it's, um, I think, yeah, I think I remember that conversation years ago that I was, yeah, they, because the objects are quite beautiful, you don't really want to disturb them, but then at the end of the day, it's sort of, yeah, you, for me, it's important to tell the story right, so... Um, the, one of the works, uh, the cultivation of whiteness, I used a diamond saw uh, to cut that up. And um, a lot of people were saying to me at the time, was like, you can't cut them because they, you know, they're beautifully lusted and, and things like that. But it's sort of, you know, I didn't go too mad on them, but it was, uh, yeah, but it, it's, it's enough, I think, yeah, yeah. And, and that destruction, I think, is very interesting. You know, it's, it's, it's also very evocative. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's um, something... Yeah, at first I was, you know, felt bad about it, yeah. But, um, but you know, I often have, I do often have glass pieces that have cracks in it and things like that, but I have to, they can't exist because they're already disintegrating, so I don't want them around anymore. So it's, a, you know, I do smash them, yeah. So, yeah, I'm sure they understand, I think, yeah. And that's difficult too, talking about the destruction of glass, because you describe your relationship with it as being like a love affair. You also refer to some of the objects as like your little babies. You have you, um, yeah, they 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 mean a lot to you. Yeah, I you know, I think um, Sam Vaudry, who's you know um, was head of install for this show, you know, uh, yeah, found me laughing with I can't remember who it was. I think it was with Lisa Wop. Because I was telling the telling the glass pieces off, so um, because they do have a life of their own, so I, I do actually talk to them, because I do feel like they have personalities as well, and they're all very different to each other. So there was one plum with Granny Diner who just wouldn't sit still. So, but so I was just yeah, you know, I actually said, "Are you right now?" Yeah. <laughs> 
You're going to calm down? What's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, 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 it's always amazing to see, see your work, uh, but this is a particularly compelling uh, installation of your work, and the first room, just stunning. So congratulations to, all, to everyone here, to Max and the entire team at ACCA for, for showing such respect for work which has such high integrity. Um, so, Ioani, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. And now we've left some time for, for questions, and I really hope there are some questions. If there are no questions, Max Delaney is going to have to ask one. I'm sure there are questions. Anything you'd like to ask of Ioani? Sure. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> My microphone. <laughs> um, hello, thank you. Um, I just wanted to know before, and in saying this, I don't know your work hugely well, um, but I wanted to know what you meant by Aboriginal architecture earlier. Yeah, there's, um, yeah, there's so many, um, you know, eel traps, permanent housing, um, uh, humpies, which I'm not sure yet, and, um, and smoking trees. Scar trees that are all large part of yeah our infrastructure. So, um, so they and they're still standing. Like you know, we're really lucky here in Victoria that there's a, a Budge Bim, which is um, in the west western districts of Victoria, that has you know um, infrastructure there that's been sitting there for thousands of years, and that shows how powerful it is. Yeah. And, and is there? Sorry, I won't take up everybody's time. But like, is there like a contemporary Aboriginal architecture? Like, does that mean something also? There's there's not enough Aboriginal architects in Australia. I think you know, like it's, um, but you know there are, and I think, um, but you know, Addition Office and I have been talking about it at length as well that there needs to be more Aboriginal architecture in in Australia, and um, again, it's going back to yeah the, you know, acknowledging First Nations people. And they should be doing that, even with place names as well here. Yeah. Another question? Thank you very much. Um, a very simple question. The bush plums, I think they're a beautiful, beautiful construction. And I, I, certainly, I, I was very struck when I, went, when I was at the exhibition on Friday, just how flexible they are. They have... They say so many things and in so many different ways. It's a wonderful construction. Um, and I found myself wondering, how long does it take to create an individual bush plum? Uh, the ones at that scale inside Missile Park is probably 20 to 30 minutes because it has black, it has color on it, so clear, it's less time than that. So yeah, it doesn't take too long, Like, but with, Yams and the smaller pieces, it's between 10 and 15 minutes. Um, yeah, that's why I've got sore wrists, like they happen pretty far, yeah, moving a lot, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And that's, that's another thing, the, the physical, um, it's, quite, a, it's quite, a crowd, quite an art, and I've seen you be exhausted by, what, what, it can be such an exhausting practice, not only the heat, what it does to your body, makes you work hard all right like it's yeah yeah but you know I wouldn't do it if I didn't love it so I think yeah sweating it out is pretty part of the process but it, that's the addictive part of it yeah any more questions one more just me sorry Iwani I love the way you talk about found materials and what they mean and what they bring to the work as well not just the images but the, the objects as well you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think um, found found objects and other materials are really um, a large part of the the process. Um, and like I was saying to, um, I was doing some filming today, and I said I'm, I'm not a glass artist. I'm a glass. I, I'm an artist that works with glass and other materials. So, but even though I'm primarily a, a glass blower, but I think um, I like fossicking quite a lot, and I like uh, you know materials that have a life before me, maybe. So, um, yeah, so people have actually asked me about Missile Park because that's from a scrapyard. You know, we, my Corey and I went to visit the scrapyard quite a lot and um, it, has the me it has a memory 
and it's got a lot of memories actually from past lives. So, and it's been beaten up actually too. So, yeah. And the the holes in the in the sheds are actually were preformed beforehand. So that's that was important. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't do that. Oh, no. Wow. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. That's all kind of that's utterly found. It's found. Yeah. Yeah. So when you go into these spaces, if you haven't already, you'll see. Um, these perforations where the, the light from outside enters, that's all, that didn't, that's you didn't all, do that? No, no. We may have added a few in there, but not, not as many as what you think, yeah. So everything is pretty much pre his existing. Yeah. I mean, that is fascinating, the idea. We talk, you know, blackfellas often talk about how, you know, and it may seem um, a little kind of strange, how we talk about objects possessing identities or places having identities or rivers having identities or buildings holding memories. But it's kind of, it's very much part of the way you work, very much the part of the way you think too. Yeah, I think so. Like I think um, it's something, yeah, if an object speaks to me that's not, yeah. And I, I sometimes, depending on the work that I'm, or the research I'm, doing or the ideas of a new work, sometimes the found object comes first. So, um, yeah, and it, I, like, I like that part of uncovering what someone else has discarded, really, yeah. I think that would be present in, the, in those, the works that you exhibit on those um, kind of um, biomedical, were they gurneys? No, they're trays for, the surgical, for surgical instruments. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think they're from the old Ballarat Hospital here in Victoria, so um, again, it's, yeah, and they used to sit in someone's backyard down on Mornington Peninsula, so yeah, now they're elsewhere, yeah. Question over here, the, in the middle of the audience. Thank you. Um, Thanks very much. It was really, really interesting. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the hanging installations, because I went to the Tarawara show as well, and the large, the large hanging installation. There's a lot of movement and a bit of sound, and I just wonder if you could, whether that was a purposeful thing or uh, what you'd like to say about those. Yeah. No, they do their own thing. Like it's something, yeah. So it's sort of. Um, I remember with the three clouds themselves. They, you know, there always is there always some concern about air conditioning or movement of human bodies within that space. But I think, um, and Daniel's been with both the two earlier clouds with me, and um, they've been tinkering away. But I think they, it's yeah, it's just part of what those clouds do. I think, and I have no control over that whatsoever. Yeah. We'll just evoke the cloud series. I mean, there's uh, Thunder Raining Poison, Death Zephyr, and... Uh, cloud Chamber. Cloud yeah. Chamber. So Yuani has basically from images, photographs taken in the immediate aftermath of some nuclear explosions at Maralinga, and I think Emu Field, captured in glass, using the glass forms, and a very complicated network of wires and you know, suspension. Um, you've recreated the formation of a cloud as it disperses across country. Yeah, yeah. so um, the three clouds, uh, the first one, Thunder Raining Poison, was inspired by rainfall and the stories of people's skin burning because they thought it was fluid from the sky, which, you know, sort of was, but it was poisonous. And then Death Zephyr was inspired by um, uh, wind and weather patterns. So, um, and that one was, you know, the image that I found was moving close to the ground. So I call that one, you know, specifically the death cloud because it did engulf a lot of people. And um, with Cloud Chamber, it was that research about what I had sort of touched on in Birmingham before I was sent home because of the pandemic. So there's a little chamber that is, moves nuclear particles or uranium to create nuclear energy. So I thought about that with that cloud, but it's, it is a direct reference to Breakaway because I feel like the Breakaway bomb site was the monster. So, yeah. Any more questions? Surely, we've got like six minutes. <laughs>
Um, uh, you said that in South Australia there's a lot of massacres that haven't been recorded or suspicions of or assumptions of. Is that just because of the British military involvement or are there other... Probably, yeah. But it's, it's even before then. So things are, you know, information's just sort of being uncovered now. But, yeah, going back to that, the nuclear, colon, you know, nuclear test there, that was mass genocide. Yeah. Like, that was just in a short amount of time. So, um... Yeah, it's probably one of the biggest, gen yeah, the biggest in Australia, or South Australia in particular. Mm. Oh, hello. Uh, hello, hey, Nicholas. Hey, Auntie, how are you? <laughs> uh, easy question, and, like, definitely being in this space, like, what would be your favourite piece, definitely, in this space? I know, like, it's a bad oh, question to ask an artist, I know. Yeah. What would be your favourite piece through working with Ioani for um, this long? Yeah, that's too uh, Granny Granny Diner yeah. here for me. It's very moving. Deadly, thank you. Yeah, I come from the UK and I um, used to work for the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament in London, which is where I met my Australian partner, which is why I'm here. Um, but I wondered if you'd come across a group called the British Nuclear Test Veterans Association. Yes, yes, yeah, are they very still much out so. Are they, they still are, out there? Yeah, 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 very active, very much so, yeah, yeah, they're still there, yeah. And in fact, many of the, um, the people who worked out here during the British nuclear tests were obviously British personnel, and many of them have survived, many haven't survived, but many have survived, and can tell you stories about EMU and Maralinga um, even though there aren't very many nuclear veterans, atomic veterans left alive in Australia. There are more over there than there are here. Yeah, and they watch very closely. I think they've watched in terms of, because both, both, it's both history, well, like both countries have issues with not like um, acknowledging the nuclear tests and how they killed people, how, um, and, um, and that, yeah, they're fighting for, for, that acknowledgement particularly, so they often are in conversation with Australian veterans. Um, there's, I'm, yeah, like, there's not many, yeah. I'm sorry to hear it's still needed, because they were very active in the 1980s, and it should have been fixed. Definitely. Both yeah. ends. Yep, yep. Not, not to mention the Indigenous yep. victims. Mm. I mean, just the whole thing yeah, is appalling. Yeah. Yep. Andy, yeah. Hi, um, you made some reference before about the, the histories in the, in the substances. So where do you source the, the substances for the glass you blow? Oh, they, it's just, it's um, batch from Castlemaine here in Victoria, but also there are other um, suppliers in Australia. So there's, there are people that make the silica and um, the other sort of powder that goes with that to form the furnace glass, yeah. So yeah, we do, you, we, I used to get um, coloured glass from New Zealand, but they've moved their um, facilities to the US, yeah. I was just wondering if you used actual sand from... Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's, a, that's a question I asked you this afternoon, actually, and I didn't, I didn't know the answer to that. It would be almost too much, I think, to... Uh, hey, um, uh, I remember seeing your work at Defying Empire at the NGA a few years back. Uh, was it Thunder, Rain, Poison, was something it, like that? Yeah. Um, I remember feeling quite taken aback by it, but also very um, scared and also very in awe of the glass forms itself. Um, just sort of made me think of how you uh, dematerialize sort of the object and kind of lean towards, I guess, the concept. And I just wanted to ask if you could speak more about sort of your methodology in um, balancing, I guess, aesthetic beauty and also the terrifying sort of nature, subject matter um, in and of itself, because. Um, it was a very beautiful piece, but 
it was also incredibly terrifying at the same time. And mm. yeah, just. Yeah, I think um, the beauty about glass is that it, it, you know, it has a sense of trickery. So, um, and I think uh, for me, the the glass was a beautiful material to to use in order to bring people closer in to see the work. So I have been told that people will go closer to a work, particularly Thunder Running Poison or any like something like Blood on the Wattle, the Coffin as well, and they they are very much interested in the material but then are quite disturbed by the story afterwards. So I think I like to be able to to do that because it's 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 the material that I'm very much in love with, like Daniel said. So it's something that I um, I work with more closely, I think, to in, you know to to do that. So um, and it's something that, particularly with the with the bomb clouds, it's it was always very strategic in order to be able to look look at from a distance, but you could get close, but not too close. And it's it, and it is about making you feel uncomfortable at the same time. Yeah, I don't know if that's answered your question, but yeah, that yeah. is. Thank you. <laughs> the juxtaposition of beauty and terror. Um, and, you know, there's always a seduction that happens with glass. Glass is seductive and even sensuous, uh, if that's possible. Uh, I think we probably have one more. Oh, oh, I thought I, think, I imagined oh, it. Is that, did you want to ask something, Andy? No, that's <laughs> I think we have one more question here at the front, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap. Hello, I just have a technical question. I just want to know, is your studio based at the Jam Factory? I, no, I, I work from home, but I do work, yeah, I do travel to Adelaide. Yeah, so I do work out of, out of Adelaide. So technically it is my studio, but I don't have, like I, I hire it, so yeah. So your yeah. furnace is based in Adelaide? Oh, their furnace is based oh, their in Adelaide, yeah. so, but I, I hire their furnace, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. yeah, as you know, there's not many in Melbourne. No, definitely. Yeah, there's private studios, but not. But um, I need to work with um, a studio that's open seven days a week, and in Adelaide, I can blow glass up until ten o'clock at night. So, on a Sunday, maybe. So, yeah, yeah. Thank you. I guess we should also thank the Jam Factory. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I do. Yeah. So I. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. We've known each other for fifteen years. As I. Yeah. I use. So it's. Yeah, it's an yeah, amazing organisation. Could you please join me in thanking you, Arnie Scarce? Thank you, Daniel, and thank you, Ioani. That was a fantastic discussion. And Thank you everyone for attending. Um, we will have the bar open up until 7.30, so please mingle, there's still half an hour. Um, and yeah, um, thank you again. Uh, it was very, very insightful, and you guys, like, the flow was really good. Thank you for all the questions. Um, yeah, um, one more round of applause for Yuani and Daniel, please.